0: listening to On the Radar, conversations with extraordinary women in science. I'm Julia Gray. This podcast series is brought to you by Anderson Press to celebrate the publication of I, Ada, a novel that explores the tumultuous teenage years of Ada Lovelace. It's available now. There are many things that I find compelling about Ada Lovelace, but first and foremost is for me unquestionably her brain. In her own lifetime, Ada was well known for being the daughter of the poet Lord Byron, but now we celebrate her for her invaluable contributions to computer science. The word computer meant something very different in the early 19th century. Computers were actually people, often schoolteachers or clergymen, who wanted to earn a bit of extra money, who would fill in by hand tables of mathematical calculations that could be used in navigation or accountancy. But the tables were, of course, not perfect, and errors could have far-reaching consequences. When, at the age of 17, Ada met Charles Babbage, he had been developing for some time an automated counting machine that he referred to as the difference engine, that would perform calculations faultlessly and replace the need for handwritten charts. He had only built a small demonstration model of his engine, but it fascinated Ada completely. She had the kind of brain that was able to solve puzzles, grasp sophisticated concepts and join ideas together, just the kind of brain, in fact, that could go on to foresee with extraordinary clarity the kind of machine that we now know as the computer. I'm delighted to welcome as my guest today, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan, a consultant neurologist based in London at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, who also writes about her work as a doctor. She won the Welcome Book Prize for her first book, It's All in Your Head, which tells the stories of people with psychosomatic illness. Her second book, Brainstorm, takes a journey around the brain through the stories of people with epilepsy. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. And what drew you to neurology in the first place?
1: Well, I mean, for me, the only specialty that ever really, you know, hugely attracted me when I started studying medicine was neurology. And I think the question is, why doesn't everybody want to do neurology, if I'm being honest? You know, the way I see it is that, you know, all of the other organs in the body, and I don't want to diss anybody else's specialty, but all of the other organs in the body only do one thing. The brain does everything. So the brain is controlling absolutely everything that we're doing at any moment, be it your heart rate or the way your eyes move or the way your limbs move or whether you feel happy or whether you feel sad. And if your brain does that much when it's healthy, then just imagine all of these sort of very bizarre ways that it behaves when it goes wrong. So neurological disease is, is a really strange entity. You know, you could see somebody one day who um, the bit of the brain responsible for making them laugh has gone wrong. So that person is laughing too much. But somebody with a similar disease could be unable to laugh and somebody else can't walk or somebody else loses consciousness. So if you think of all the the, the things that the brain does, when it starts to go wrong, it's really fascinating. And it, it it's a specialty which is about puzzle solving. So you have to take... Somebody comes to you and says they're numb in one finger and their eyelid is droopy, and you have to put little puzzle pieces together and try and figure out what sort of disease process could be going on, and and it's a really sort of thoughtful specialty, and you, you feel like a detective when you're doing it, so
0: well your books which um, I have read your second book and I'm reading your first and I think they've been described as detective Uh, it is detective writing isn't it and um, I read them with the same kind of breathless impatience that I would I would read one of my beloved Agatha Christie's longing to find out what the solution is and desperately hoping that there would be a solution because in some some heartbreaking instances of course you conclude that at the moment that person's case cannot be solved Um, Mm. and one of the things that I was quite bowled over by actually is the empathy with which you write and the amount that you care about your patients and mm. and each of their individual conditions. Mm. And so talking of, of these detective stories, can you describe for our listeners a case that you found particularly mysterious or one that was really satisfying to solve?
1: Yeah, I mean, I recall a man who I saw when I was quite a junior stage in my career. Well you know when you begin out studying medicine, you know you you think everything is contained in a book, but the truth is that you know all the different ways a body can go wrong can't fit in a book, so you're constantly encountering things that you've never encountered before. So I always remember this man who came to me and he was actually a school janitor and the first thing that happened to him, he was sitting in a meeting with um the school head, and it was quite a stressful meeting, and halfway through it, he noticed that he could see the image of um, the seven dwarfs run suddenly across the room and disappear behind a plant pot. Now, it seemed incredibly real to him. It was a cartoon of seven small people, but he knew it wasn't real. And it only lasted about 30 seconds and then it was gone. After the first time it happened, it started happening lots of times. So he came to me as a neurologist to say, well, you know, why am I seeing these um, cartoon characters? Now, I guarantee you there is no sort of index in any book that says cartoon characters, why is one seeing them? You know, this doesn't exist. So, you know, it it was a real mystery. And I have to say that, you know, I I didn't have an answer for him when I first saw him. So what we do in the instance where somebody has these really sort of bizarre symptoms that just come and go, when I'm seeing him, he's perfectly healthy. What I need to do is see him when he is seeing the cartoon characters because that's where the answer lies So I admitted him to hospital to a thing that we have, which is called the telemetry unit. Um, And this is a place where we can bring people into hospital who are only sick for a few minutes a week. And we put them in a room and we record everything physiological that we can record. So we record their brain waves, we record their heart rate, their blood pressure. We have a video that looks at the patient. So we're just waiting for this sort of untoward thing to happen. And we're going to capture everything that's going on in the body at that moment. And sure enough, this man came in for a week, and for the first couple of days, he's perfectly fine. And then on day three, he reports he has just seen these characters running across the room. Um, what we could see when he had that sort of symptom is that his brain waves went haywire in association with this. So, all of our brains work through electrical activity. When I move a hand, there's electrical activity in my brain. What happened to him was that electrical activity was just arriving in a huge burst when he saw these characters so what that meant was that these little cartoon characters were actually the manifestation of an epileptic seizure and I think that might kind of surprise some people because I think people think of seizures as falling on the ground and shaking but actually they're just a manifestation of, of a bit of unwanted electrical activity in the brain and what happens in them depends on that bit of the brain that's diseased so in this man it's very likely that a little bit of electrical activity was activating the bit of his brain which remembers something from his childhood, for example. Maybe he'd seen those cartoon characters in his childhood and the memory was being activated by the seizure. Or maybe it was activating his imagination. No, I don't need to have seen those characters to know what they look like. So perhaps it was just stimulating his his, um, imagination. So when I meet people like that man, I just think... I'll believe anything when you come and see me. I'll believe any symptom and I'll follow anything to the end. Because, you know, what happened for him in the end is once we knew he had epilepsy, we put him on a tablet for epilepsy and the hallucination went away. So it was both mysterious and then thankfully satisfying in the end.
0: So interesting. And there's something about, I mean, we know that those visions or manifestations, they could be anything, but there's something about seven dwarves that, because it's, it's almost archetypal, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's something from fairy tales. So it's, where could it have been coming from? And I'm glad there was a resolution to his case. And what was so fascinating, I think, is how many different kinds of different ways epilepsy can manifest. Um, Not None of the textbook ones that I might have predicted. Um, There's a a whole range of them, aren't there?
1: I mean, it pretty much, if you can imagine everything your body does is represented somewhere in your brain. And if that electrical discharge hits that one little thing, that's the thing will go wrong. So that you could be, you know, my pupil is now determining how much light is in the room. If the electrical discharge hits the bit of my brain that, that helps me do that, then all that will happen in seizure is my pupil will start constricting and dilating really quickly. Or, as in the case of that man, if it's in the memory area of the brain, you recall a memory. Or if it's responsible for moving my thumb, my thumb twitches. So it's sort of, you know, it's a specialty which is full of oddities and no two people are the same. You know, telemetry unit is a fascinating place to work because... You admit people with very funny symptoms and you set up all this equipment and then you come in every morning to work and you turn on the video and you're just thinking, what will I see today? And, you know, after 20 years of doing it, I, you know, I've, I have see new things on a regular basis.
0: And how do you... Because it, it must be hard to predict um when you might be able to capture that moment yeah how how do you manage that is it just a question of watching and waiting
1: yes it is extreme good luck although there are you know there are things we can do to trigger seizures so people are more likely to have seizures if they're very tired or if they've had a lot of alcohol and so there are things we can do to sort of um try and make the seizures more likely and actually seizures i mean are such odd things that people will often tell us what triggered them so for example there are is a type of seizure that's triggered by listening to music um, so we try and ask the person is there anything that triggers your seizures otherwise it's watchful waiting and just crossing your fingers and hoping for the best.
0: I love those descriptions of it. It's the kind of Eureka moment where you're sitting there and the technician is there, and it's the F two electrode, or the <laughs> yeah. and and you're you're trying to extrapolate that data that is going yeah. to help with the next step, which is um which is treatment yeah. or further investigation. Yeah. I honestly I found it fascinating, Thank um, you. and I I want to ask about um about psychosomatic illness now because that was yeah. the focus of your first book, and this is super yeah. interesting because of the because there's such a crossover. Uh, into the psychological illness um, yeah. so how, what is psychosomatic illness?
1: So a psychosomatic illness is where a person suffers with a real disability and I'm going to emphasize the word real here because there's nothing sort of these are just as disabling conditions as anything else but the people with real disabilities that but they don't have a disease they're thought to have a psychological cause rather than being due to disease and the thing I see most often are what psychosomatic seizures. So people actually blacking out and having convulsions for purely psychosomatic reasons. And I think people have traditionally thought that this is kind of a rarity or an oddity. But actually, you know, on any given week, if I admit six people to hospital with seizures, two will have these psychosomatic seizures. So it's a really common problem that people don't talk about enough. Psychosomatic problems, of course, aren't just seizures. It could be memory loss or headaches or stomach pains or palpitations, anything a person can imagine. Very significant medical problems.
0: And it's probably quite hard to hear as a diagnosis.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think what's, you know, there's there's a lot of very sort of negative connotations associated with it and there's a lot of very old-fashioned associations. So people tend to think about psychosomatic disorders and they think about people like Freud who associated psychosomatic disorders as with abuse or emotional distress. So Freud believed that you know, if you suffered severe emotional distress and couldn't handle it, that you buried it deep inside you, so it came out as a physical symptom. And for a long time, doctors approached all psychosomatic symptoms in that way. And you can imagine how wrong that goes because it means that a doctor is, is telling a patient you have a psych- hidden psychological trauma and the patient is saying well no I don't have a hidden psychological trauma, thereby sort of almost proving the doctor right and it's an endless conversation. But we now know that those sort of um, automatic associations with abuse or distress or psychological trauma are are wrong. Unfortunately in the public eye we're still struggling to publicize that fact which is why I wrote my first book is to try and explain that these are actually quite normal conditions um, and not sort of um, and they don't happen because someone is mad or someone is weak or someone is fragile they are actually part of normal life I mean we all get these as I always say to people you know when I speak in public my voice cracks in a very obvious way you know, that is a psychosomatic symptom. That's my body reacting in an uncontrollable way to something psychological happening. But unfortunately for some people, that can lead to disability.
0: Yeah, and when it becomes chronic, that's when it's it's it, hard to manage. Yeah. Exactly. So you like we know we know that there is so much that we don't know about the brain we can't we can't examine its workings in the same way that we can the heart we can't know what every part of it does that's one of the things that is so um so daunting I suppose for you when you're trying to when you go into your interdisciplinary meeting is that it and you you or your cross-disciplinary meeting and you're trying to make a decision Mm. about how someone can be treated um what is it that you hope will come to light soon about the brain? What is the next yeah. sort of frontier of fin- finding out?
1: Yeah, so there are so many unanswered questions when it comes to the brain, and there's some the big questions or things like how does the brain create intelligence or personality or how does it maintain consciousness you know i'll be honest i i'm not anticipating those answers an answer to those questions in my lifetime if i'm being honest unless there's some big breakthrough so you know but there are things that i hope i will see in my lifetime and probably the one i'm hoping for most is that we find a way to teach the brain how to repair itself so most organs will repair themselves you know if you cut your skin It will repair itself, and often it will do so very effectively without even leaving a scar. Our brain cells do not repair themselves. And that creates a really big problem for neurologists because we're super clever and excited when it comes to diagnosing problems so I can find the source of somebody's symptoms. But if there's diseased brain cells there, there's nothing I can do to actually reverse the damage that has already been done. But I think it's realistic to think, that we will find a way, for example, with the use of things like stem cells that can be used to grow into any other kind of cell that will help us to teach the brain to repair itself. So I, I'm hopeful we will see big moves forward in that at some point in the future.
0: That would be that would be amazing. Because yeah. I think um, one of the things I found so affecting was when the personality of somebody had yeah. been profoundly changed and there was no way that that could be managed Mm -hmm. um, and and it must be hard the kind of loss of yourself and your identity Mm. Um, and I'd like to talk about creative writing because that of of course is how I know you because you did the same course that I had done I think the year after I graduated um so we both studied creative writing at Birkbeck and I think were you working on your first book at the time or had you already written it when you were studying
1: Actually, it, unconventionally, I had finished my first book and it was about to come out for publication. And I, so I decided to do a creative writing course after I'd already written a book, which is perhaps like the opposite way to other people. But I, I sort of realized when I wrote my first book that I love this and I don't want to be someone who's got one interesting subject and they've written about it. You know, I wanted to make more of a career out of writing. Uh, so I decided that I needed to be educated. I hadn't written anything for fun since I was about 18. So um, that's quite a long time ago. So I decided to do a creative writing course. The other reason I did it, it was a gift to myself. You know, there's a point in your life where you've been doing the same career for a, a long time. And I think people, teenagers, for example, worry that, you know, they're making a decision when they're seventeen or eighteen, about what they're going to do with the rest of their lives, and that then that will force them down a single road. It doesn't have to be that way. You can do this one thing, and then at a certain age, you can decide, you know what? I want to fulfil that other ambition too. So, at a at, when I was much too old, I thought, you know what? I want to be more than one thing. So, a gift to myself was an MA in creative writing, and I would recommend it. It was amazing.
0: Me too. I think it's yeah. the best best gift to yourself I I, I loved that MA I I think of it with such nostalgia and but how will you use that fiction writing course that you did do you is there a part of you that wants to write fiction
1: Uh, yes a very big part of me wants to write fiction actually yeah I've just finished my third non-fiction book um, I've just handed that in so actually yesterday I've now started my first fiction book you know congratulations writing... thank you well congratulate me when I finish it and somebody wants to publish it <laughs> but uh, you know I I've I've had an amazing opportunity to write about my patients and they're so generous kind of giving me their stories, but it's, it's, it's such a huge responsibility. You're, you're telling other people's stories and you've got to protect those people. um, And you've got to, D- you know, constantly constrained by facts, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, sort of after three books, I'm thinking, I would love to sit down and write something where I'm constrained by nothing. So mm. I'm going to give it a go, but we'll see. That yeah. must be
0: incredibly freeing. Are we allowed yeah. to hear anything about your third nonfiction book or is it secret yeah. for now?
1: Oh, no, it's not secret at all. Um, so I have basically spent the last couple of years traveling around the world, visiting places where they've had mass hysteria outbreaks. So mass hysteria is sort of, um hysteria's old name for psychosomatic disorder. So it's sort of neurological complaints that have a psychological cause like seizures or blackouts. Um, and every now and again, at somewhere in the world, there is an outbreak of what we call mass hysteria, where hundreds of people get a psychosomatic disorder which is identical simultaneously. So just to give you one example, there's a little town in Kazakhstan called Krasnogorsk. And I think it was about 2012, um, over the course of a year, about 187 people out of a population of 300 fell asleep for no reason and didn't wake up for like a week or over a week at a time. And there was no sort of physical or disease-related cause for that. And it's felt to have some sort of rooting in, in psychological stress.
0: Did they fight there was no cause at all that could be well, discerned or...?
1: I guess there is a course, which is that this is related to psychological mechanisms. I had an amazing journey. I went to this little town in Kazakhstan, and I thought when I went there that all these people were falling asleep because it wasn't a very nice place to live, let's put it that way. It was sort of in the middle of a really freezing step in Kazakhstan. It goes to minus 50 in the winter. The people were very poor. They had no electricity or running water. And I sort of had formed the theory that they were falling asleep because it was just such a a difficult existence. But actually, when I got there, I found a very different story, which is that this town was actually a secret uranium mining town set up by the Russians. And it was a spectacularly privileged town during the Soviet era. And the people had this really special life living there. They were the richest people in Kazakhstan. Um, But then the Soviet era fell apart and they went from riches to rags. The problem that really led to the sleeping sickness is that they were sort of living in this town that was falling apart and they had this hope that it would become rich again. You know, they'd had this special life that they'd lost. And like any of us, we're all waiting to come out of lockdown and hoping, you know, that everything will still be there. And these people held on to this hope for a long time that this special life was still there. And then they they realized it wasn't coming back and the sleeping sickness led them to believe they were being poisoned in the town which made them leave the town and so what the sleeping sickness had done is it solved a problem for them it said you know we got to leave this town we love and we don't want to and the sleeping sickness made their minds up it said you know you can't live here anymore they left the town and they all recovered so it was just it was kind of a love story that's what I thought in the end it was a love story with the town It was really it's an
0: amazing it's an amazing story did they associate the uranium with this idea of poisoning
1: yeah, I mean, they were convinced that they were being poisoned by something in the atmosphere. Um, and for a year, the government tested for poisons. It was absolutely, it was conclusively ruled out. Um also that, you know, the disease didn't behave like a uranium mine poisoning. So, you know, but it, it helped the town to believe it was a poisoning and it helped them to make a very difficult decision. Yeah.
0: And they probably wouldn't have been able to, to do so without the magnitude of like it was such a huge event presumably yeah. for them it gave them that justification it's an amazing exactly. story yeah. I can't wait for your third vote <laughs> <laughs> I um I would like to ask you about um what advice you would give to a young person who is like you fascinated by the brain what would you tell them to do or to think about
1: yeah, I think that, you know, the wonderful thing about neurology, but not just neurology, actually, this kind of applies to medicine and biology and, and all the sciences, is that it's not one career. So, you know, it is, there is something in this for everybody. So I think we worry that, um, you know, I'm not the right kind of person, you know, I, I I don't love working with people all the time. So maybe it's not the thing for me. Hey, well, then maybe you should be a neurosurgeon. You don't even have to talk to anybody in that case. There's a sort of, there is a little sub area of everything (laughs) for everyone. So maybe you're someone who loves to be in a lab and you love just, you know, trying to have a big discovery for the future or maybe you love talking to people our ages or maybe you love practical doing things with your hands so whatever type of person you are there is an area in sort of neuroscience that will be suited to you it's also an amazing career if you want to travel if you want to work anywhere in the world it translates everywhere so I would really encourage people to enter the neurosciences because it's a really fascinating world
0: I love that there's something for everyone in neuroscience. Yeah. And when I was um, when I was 16, Dr. Baroness Susan Greenfield came to talk to us about the brain, yeah. and I w- went away and I read her books, and I was I wrote to her and she wrote back, and I was I was so chuffed. And I love the fact that today's young people can read your books, Suzanne. Thank you thank so you. much for coming to talk oh, to us thank today. You.
1: Thanks so much, Julia. Good luck with your book.
0: In this extract from I Ada. Ada, Mama, and Miss Stamp, the governess, are in Geneva on their grand tour. They have gone to the public library, where they are admiring a Roman shield that is on display, and Ada reflects on the inner workings of her brain. "'How are you finding Ada's thoughts, Miss Stamp?' Mama says with customary abruptness, as though I am not there. Miss Stamp seems temporarily at a loss for words. "'Well,' she says, I don't know if I can speak for Ada about her own thoughts, but those thoughts of hers to which I am privy seem to me to be of great interest and originality. But what about the arrangement of her thoughts? Mamma persists. Witnessing my daughter, it seems to me that she veers from exclamations on the prettiness of the view to a meditation on some question of arithmetic, pausing to sing a scale or draw an outline of a chimney in chalk and then declaring that she might perhaps like to learn a new instrument or two. Indeed, says Miss Stamp cautiously. It's true, I do behave like this and she can't really deny it. Mamma carries on. It seems to me, in short, that Ada's mind is most worryingly disorganised. At this, she squints furiously at the Roman shield, and then at me, as though comparing us both and finding me wanting by contrast. There is a pause. Rather morosely, I gaze at the shield. It is a handsome, shiny, heavy-looking thing, exactly what I'd expect the Romans to have made. Someone has beaten away at it for hours, I see, marking it with tiny identical indentations. In just the same way does Mama wish my mind to be moulded. It is entirely clear. What is Miss Stamp going to say to Mama? I have always thought of her as an ally, someone who will come to my defence to shield me even if I need it. And sure enough, Miss Stamp tells Mamma, very prettily, that my mind has no shortcomings in so far as its organization is concerned. Well, Miss Stamp, says Mamma, you do satisfy me with this response, although it remains my strong conviction that my daughter's time would be better employed in mathematical pursuits than, for example, in writing romantic and fanciful stories. At no point has she asked me what I think about my own mind, but that doesn't surprise me. She is paying my governess to educate me, and therefore she can regard my intellect as a purchase, a possession of her own. But if she were to ask me whether I agree, what would I say? In a way I consider her observations of the way my mind flits from place to place to be quite accurate. But what she calls disorganisation, I call something different.' The feeling of allowing my thoughts to fly from one passion to another, not allowing themselves to be tied down by doubt or digression or ideas about rules, well, that, to me, feels more like freedom. You've been listening to On The Radar, conversations with extraordinary women in science. On The Radar was produced by Jonathan Moore and me, Julia Gray, and mixed and edited by Jonathan Moore. And with special thanks to Paul Black, Rob Faramond, Chloe Sacker, Louise Lament, Jennifer Johnson, and today's guest, Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan. Music by Second Person. I, Ada, is published by Anderson Press and available wherever you buy your books.